We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. And it is time to unveil the top 10 of our top 30 Pacers of all time list. Kent Sterling on the other line with me. Kent, what's going on, man? Not a lot. I've been looking forward to this. The The first 20 were a lot of fun. I think the top 10 is going to be great. Looking forward to hearing what you what you think are the top 10 players in Pacers history. Yeah, this is definitely a tough exercise. And, you know, I've been giving you a hard time for no Oladipo on your list. And, you know, as we get into number 10, can I just take a quick guess at who you have at number 10? Sure. Uh, I'm going to go with Pacers rookie center Gogo Bataze. <laughs> yeah, that's a good guess. No, no, even I'm not so bullish on Goga. You know what, though? I'm telling you, at some point down the road, if we do a show like this like six years from now, I'll bet you that Goga Batadza is somewhere on there. This guy is going to wind up being a good player for the Pacers. Oh, he man. just, at this point, uh, I, that clearly has not come to uh, that. Yeah, that dream of mine hasn't come true. Yeah, I mean, you're still sleeping, but hey, one day you'll wake up and we'll see if your dream becomes a reality. But uh, <laughs> anyway, let's move on to number 10. Who do you got, Kent? I got Vern Fleming. Okay. Like, you know what? Longevity's got to count for something. He played right. 11 seasons for the Pacers. He was very, very consistent over the first seven, averaging between 12 and 14.3 points a game. Uh, he, he was a nice playmaker, averaged usually somewhere in the area of seven assists a game, and really one of the most popular pl- uh, pacers of all time. You still see people wearing his jerseys at Banker's Life Fieldhouse, even though he never played in that building. Mm-hmm. And he's still an Indianapolis resident. So this is more, I, I guess it's it, never an all-star, never really succeeded at a high level in the uh, in the postseason. But you know what? you got to kind of tip your hat to Vern someplace, so I threw him in the top ten. Yeah, I'm fine with that. I mean, I had Vern on my list at 17. We talked about him last week a little bit. You know, he's he's a staple of the franchise from the 80s and 90s era, so I definitely think he's worthy of putting on the list, you know. And, and one thing that people probably don't know is he is very present, and I, I've seen him at a lot of Pacer games, and he's one of those guys that, you know, just really embraced the franchise and, I think if a guy embraces the franchise, stays here for the longevity of his career, he's worth putting on the list. So I'm fine with that at number 10. No no uh, argument for me. Uh, I guess for my number 10, which I already kind of hinted at last week, I'm going with Danny Granger. You know, this is a guy that is so good he can make your list twice. But, you know, he's got Indiana Pacers, <laughs> nine seasons, 17.6 points a game when he was here, was really that leader and was really the guy that, you know, put the Pacers – uh, not on the map, but he was really the only one that was, you know, present during the rough 
recovery years from the brawl. So uh, love me some Danny Granger. Maybe this is a little bit too personal, and that's why I have him so high. But one of my favorite players. And I got to ask you, Kent, I don't know if you remember when the Pacers had their 50th uh, year anniversary celebration a couple years ago. Yeah. And they gave out the bobbleheads. And they gave one for each decade. So, like, you had Slick Leonard, and then you had some other guys. I, I had the Chuck Person one, the Slick Leonard one, the Paul George one, Reggie Miller. But for the 2000s, they gave it to Danny Granger over Jermaine O'Neal. Uh, that was interesting. Yeah, that, that's, a, that, that's tough to justify, really. Jermaine O'Neal, uh, what, a seven-time All-Star? I know, you know that's what really I'm good. Like, Danny why? Granger was terrific, but, man. You know, uh, Jermaine, Jermaine was maybe didn't have the charisma of Danny Granger, doesn't have that moment when he got his teeth knocked out and continued playing. Mm -hmm. But Jermaine was a he was a hell of a player for a long time here. Yeah, and that's that was one of the things like you understand the Paul Georges, the Chuck Persons, the Slick Leonards, Reggie, of course, you know, you get those. And then I'm just thinking. You know, maybe it's because they felt bad that Danny went through all those terrible teams with Troy Murphy and Mike Dunleavy. You know, maybe they felt bad for him, thought, well, we can make it up to him by giving him a bobblehead because we wasted the prime of his career, you know, putting together a pretty mediocre team. I don't know. And he was very popular within the organization and and with fans where Jermaine O'Neal really not as popular either inside or outside the organization, Mm -hmm. not a charismatic guy. And, and not somebody who is really uh, who embraced his potential role as as a guy in this community doing stuff and really being tethered to it. So mm-hmm. Danny, Danny certainly is, is better remembered in that regard than Jermaine O'Neill. So I, I totally get it. And, and, you know, just like with this list, uh, we have our personal favorites. People within the organization have their personal favorites. And, and you know, Danny is one of those guys. Mm hmm. No, I completely agree with that. Danny, we talked about him a lot on the last podcast, so if you guys didn't check that out, make sure you head on over there. You can hear more content about Danny Granger. But, yeah, one of my all-time favorite Pacers of all time, made my top ten. Maybe a little too high, but who cares? It's my list, like you said. Let's move on to number nine. Kent, who you got? I got Billy Knight, and and i got to tell you the truth. I never really saw him play, but a two-time All-Star, an All-Star in the Pacers' first season in the NBA. Uh, in that season, scored 26.5 points, pulled down 7.5 boards. He was really, really good here for a long time, played eight seasons for the Pacers, both in the ABA and the NBA, like I said, a two-time All-Star, and wound up being a really, really capable NBA executive. So I like Billy Knight. Yeah, that's funny because I, too, have Billy Knight at number nine. So look at us matching up there. So (laughs) uh, that's not happened too often on this list, but I have to say, you know, Billy and I, you just look at the numbers, and it's like, how can I keep this guy off the list? Uh, just a fantastic player in ABA days. Obviously, I didn't watch I didn't watch any of his NBA career. I mean, the guy retired in 1985. I was born in 92. So, no, I didn't watch him play at all. But if you look at the tape, you watch some of the old video highlights on YouTube of him, and you see the way that he carried himself and helped that Pacers team. I mean, just looking at his numbers here at the age of 23, he was averaging 28.1 points a game in the 75-76 season. And then the 76-77 season, he averaged 26.6 points. So it's like, that's winning basketball right there, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm sure the guys that are huge ABA fans and know a lot about Billy Knight, they're probably laughing at me trying to describe uh, how great of a basketball player he was because I'm not doing it the right justice. But I just felt like, you know, Billy Knight is not someone that you hear a lot of people talk about with that ABA team. He's kind of on the back burner. So yeah. uh, that's one of those things where it's like, man, Billy Knight was actually really, really good and wasn't isn't talked about enough for his success with the Pacers. So that's why I have him at number nine. Well, and he came in a little bit late, right? You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't a part of any of the championship seasons for the Pacers, any of the three. Right. And so when you talk about those teams, when you talk about the ABA Pacers, you focus on the three champion teams. And so it's Roger Brown and it's Mel and it's Billy and it's Neto, and and all of those guys are remembered especially fondly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Billy, I think, in his eight years here was terrific. And really, you know, uh, the Pacers have have launched a lot of careers of front office guys and and coaches out of their their organization. And Billy, you know, probably among those, you know, somewhere in the top five all time, guys who became coaches or front office executives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I guess since we both had Billy Knight at nine for my number eight, I went with Freddie Lewis. And this is the guy 
that you always hear attached to those ABA championship teams like you were talking about, Kent. You know, you got Mel, you got Roger, and you got McGinnis, but people always seem to forget about how great Freddie Lewis is, but the guys that watched the ABA Pacers, they would always chime in on the radio when they'd be talking about the old ABA teams, or if they're mentioned on Twitter, you'd see guys that watch them, and they're like, oh, Freddie Lewis was really good. I mean, if you look at his numbers with the Pacers, you know, he averaged 16 points a game for him, and that was through eight seasons, and that's just overall, you know, before he was uh, before he was traded. He played one year in the um, NBA with the Pacers as well, and, you know, didn't only, only played 32 games, and he was 33 years old. So, I mean, his career ended relatively shortly. Like, these guys didn't play super long like you see players do now. So, just a really talented guy, and I'm curious your thoughts on Billy Knight. Yeah, I uh, well on uh, uh, Freddie Lewis. I'm sorry. Right, I, I've got Freddie just a little bit higher because when I talk to the old timers about this stuff, that's exactly who they point at. And as I went down that roster of the the champions, right, I talked about Roger and and Mel and Neto, and I never got to Freddie Lewis. But if you mm-hmm. talk to people from that era, like Freddie Lewis was dynamic, and Freddie Lewis was a key component to the success that the Pacers had in the ABA, a part of all three of the championship teams. And like you said, the stats, they kind of speak for themselves. A 16-point-a-game guy, a lot of assists, uh, a lot of rebounds for being a six-foot-tall guy, and and did everything at a very competent level. Not a great three-point shooter, but a guy who is really, really good and kind of the glue guy for those teams that won championships. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. So let's move on. Kent, who do you have at number seven? My let me let me start with number eight uh, oh. with Dale Davis. Okay, I got Dale at at number eight, and, and I know that that might be a little bit high for people, but I think that Dale Davis set an emotional tone for the uh, for those teams in the '90s, and was really really good at doing that. I mean, when he got off the bus. You, you knew you were going to be playing somebody and you were going to be involved in a physical war of basketball through 10 seasons. I thought he was really, really good. He was an all-star one year in, uh, in that, that 99-2000 uh, season where, mm-hmm. where the Pacers went to the finals. And then I really thought, you know what? I mean, you, you look at him and you look at the numbers and, and they decreased a little bit when he went to Portland. But he was still a good basketball player, and I wish that Donnie would have kept that team together and given him maybe one more run. It would have been interesting to see, especially that 98 team, mm-hmm. or the 2000 team, as they would have gone into 01. You know, you're, you're, not dealing with, you're not dealing with an Eastern Conference, like the Eastern Conference that you had from 90 through 98 with Michael playing in all but one of those postseasons you know this this that Pacers team in 2000 I thought had a little bit of gas in the tank and it would have been interesting to see how they moved forward well didn't they trade uh Dale for uh Jermaine O'Neal that summer in August I believe yep yep so I mean would you rather have had Dell Davis for one more you know good year or would you rather gotten a young guy like Jermaine yeah I mean that's a legitimate point you know, and and that's exactly what happened. It was uh, uh, they got Joe Klein and Jermaine O'Neal, but Joe Klein, I, they were just shuffling Joe Klein's contract around. Joe Klein had the best contract in the history of the NBA. <laughs> I don't know when exactly he stopped playing, but he was cashing checks long after he was an active, an active player in the NBA, and and so good for Joe Klein. Um, but you know what? That's that's a good point. But you weren't going to win in 2000-2001 because of Jermaine O'Neal in the way that maybe you would have won with Dale and then Mark Jackson and and Mully and and all those guys who were a part of the Crozier, a part of the 2000 team that weren't around in in 2001 anymore. Um, That I I just, I hate to see teams go out like that. And and that team, boy, oh boy, that team was really pretty good and they might have had a little bit of gas left in that tank. Yeah, I, I still think it would have been difficult to go up against Shaq and Kobe once again one more year together with the three-peat that they had, but it still would be fun to you know talk about. But I've got to ask you because on our last podcast on Thursday, I believe it was Thursday night, there was a question brought up, and they said, who wins in a fist fight, Ron Artest or Dell Davis? And oh. I went with Dell Davis, but i gotta, I got to get your thoughts. Who do you think wins in that fist fight? 
Well, you got Braun versus Crazy, right? And <laughs> yeah, exactly. and I think that Braun versus Crazy, Crazy might win a round and might score an early knockout. Mm-hmm. But I think in the end, uh, I think that Braun is going to dominate Crazy. And I would take Dale Davis in a uh, a decision. It goes all 12 rounds, and Dale wins nine of the 12 rounds. That would be so fun to see, a boxing match between those two. I That would be the greatest thing during this quarantine right now, Kent, to see those two in a boxing match. I can't, I can't <laughs> lie. But uh, anyway, yeah. let's move on to your number seven now. So who do you got at number seven? Number seven, I got George McGinnis. Okay. George McGinnis was terrific. George mm-hmm. McGinnis was really the guy, when, when the ABA became the NBA, and he even went to the NBA a year ahead. And I think George McGinnis's migration from the ABA to the NBA kind of made made it palatable for fans to accept the ABA and, and some of the talent in the, in the ABA as uh, at least dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think that George McGinnis and Julie Serving, obviously a big part of that. But when he was with the Pacers, my God, you know, 30 points a game, 15 rebounds a game. Um, and then six assists, his stat line in 74-75, absolutely unbelievable. A three-time All-Star for the Pacers, a three-time All-Star in the NBA, came back his last three years before retiring at the age of 31 in 81 and 82. Uh, but a really, I mean, you talk, to me, George McGinnis was a lot like Dwight Howard before Dwight Howard. You know, uh, George McGinnis was a six eight guy and seemed taller to me. Seemed to play taller, mm-hmm. and he was big and athletic. And back then, you kind of had you had the tall guys who were skinny, but you didn't have the tall guys who were really filled out. And George yeah. McGinnis was one of those guys, just a dominating dude. See, I've heard George McGinnis compared to LeBron James. Do you uh, see any comparisons yeah, yeah. there? Yeah, I mean, it, I don't think that he was ever the shooter that LeBron James is. I mean, he, he was never a, a tremendous shooter, kind mm-hmm. of an odd-looking shot. But, you know, he could play multiple spots. He could defend multiple spots. He did everything well other than shoot threes. And uh, just a, uh, a crazy, dynamic guy who, for whatever reason, because I don't think it was a bunch of injuries, but uh, retired after that 81-82 season. And, and remains one of those guys. He went to Washington High School, played a year at Indiana, and and then jumped to the ABA, one of those guys who at each level played in the state of Indiana and I thought represented the, the, the state really, really well. Yeah, I've got him quite a bit higher on my list, so I'll talk about him when I get to that point. But, yeah, so for me, number seven, Ken, I've got the Duncan Dutchman, Rick, Rick Smiths. And, you know, this is probably a little sentimental, too. He only was an, a one-time All-Star, that's it, in the 97-98 era at the age of 31. Retired at the age of 33. I know he had some bad feet injuries there towards the end of his career. But, yeah, you know, all I got to say is this guy was a true pacer, played his entire career here, was so pivotal to this team's success once they started making playoff run after playoff run. And I just I got to give it to him because the scariest thing that I've ever seen about Rick Smith is when he shaved his head. Uh, him <laughs> and Chris Mullen. <laughs> you know, that mullet was, was beautiful. I do it. That that mullet was beautiful, but that shaved head with him and Chris Mullen, yikes. I'm glad we don't have to see that again. But just the numbers, I mean, they're not spectacular if you look at them from a career standpoint. 14.8 points a game, 6.1 rebounds. Uh, you know, those are very similar to, you know, someone like Miles Turner right now. And, you know, but you look at the way he carried the team, the, the charisma that he had. I mean, it was, you know, something that was – he wasn't the guy. Reggie was obviously the guy, but you knew he was a second-hand man. He would get in foul trouble quite a bit. That was his biggest problem, was getting in foul trouble in pivotal games. But he, he made big shot after big shot, and he was definitely not a bruiser. So that's kind of why it was nice to have an Antonio and Adele Davis beside him because that team just really fit well together. But he had a great shot, a great post move, and I love the game winner he had against the Magic. I believe it was game four, I believe, right? Yeah, in right. the playoffs in ninety four, ninety five. So yeah, just Rick Smith's just a legendary pacer, and I felt like he was worthy of number seven on my list. I, I've got him at number three, and uh, I'll talk about him a little bit now. Um, I, I love the guy. You yeah. know, coming out of Marist, the number two overall pick, it looked for a bit of a time that he might be a bust, 
but he really developed his game, became a, a, a high-level rim protector, a, as well as a guy who could score the basketball a little bit. Um, he is a uh, – I think they still – they rented a house in the area because his son – was mopping up his uh, his college career at Butler this year, uh, but he lived in Zinesville for years and years after uh, playing for the Pacers. Would play in leagues out at the Fisher's Field House. You'd see him out there every once in a while playing, and mm-hmm. and just a good guy, a smart guy, a funny guy. When his son Derek played at Zinesville, I went and saw uh, Zinesville play Fishers in high school, and I sat right behind Rick. And and I, I've got to assume it was his sister because she was about six eight, and and then his wife was there also. And Rick got hot at one of the officials and flipped the guy off. <laughs> Yelled at the official. I was sitting right behind. He flipped the guy off. I was like, okay, uh, that doing that. Although it, it, it maybe I'm rewarding poor sportsmanship somehow. That elevates him to number three on my list. <laughs> I, I'm going to overlook some of the stuff and and give him a nice bump. Because, you know, a seven foot four inch Dutchman with a son playing for Zionsville, for God's sake, flipping off an official, I thought it was hilarious. Well, that's funny. I have a good story about Rick Smith, too, because we know he still lives in Indiana. And uh, I, I coached basketball for a couple of years, the last couple of years. And uh, uh, two of the kids on my team, their dad, had posted something on Facebook Marketplace for sale. I don't remember what it was exactly. But he came and told me, he's like, yeah, so I put something on Facebook Marketplace and a guy by the name of Rick messaged me and said that he was interested in what I was selling and that, um, you know, he would like to buy them. And I was like, okay, can you meet me at my house at such and such time? And he was like, yeah, sure, no problem. He said, all of a sudden, I hear the doorbell ring. I go to the front door and Rick Smith is standing on my front porch. (laughs) And he said, I was just like. Rick, Rick, you idiot. How did you not realize it was R-A-K, Rick? You know, who spells your name like that? Nobody in <laughs> Indiana besides Rick Smith. So the boys came down and took a picture with him, and he posted it on his Facebook. And I was like, that is a great story. He was like, he was the nicest guy. He talked to us for a while. And then, you know, after that, he went out and about. And my grandpa, he's worked at the Boat Sport and Travel Show for years uh, as like a, as an usher or security, whatever you want to call it. And... He said Rick was always out there at the boat sport and travel show, too. So, you know, Rick's just an Indiana guy. I mean, most definitely worthy of being in the top ten on this list, not only for his on-court contributions, but off-court as well. Hey, I'm interested in your number six. Who you got at six, Alex? Yeah, so number six, I've got the man that you didn't want us to trade Dale Davis for, and that's Jermaine O'Neal. So, you know, it's one of those things where I, I look at Jermaine, and, you know, and it's like, Okay, you know, his best years obviously were here with the Pacers. He averaged 18 points, 6 points a game, 9.6 rebounds. It looks like 2.4 blocks in his career for the Pacers. And he made, like you said, six or seven all-star appearances with the Pacers. So just a guy that we all know as the leader of that team during that era. You know, the post-Reggie, really the post-Reggie era was the Jermaine era. And we know Reggie was part of it. But, you know, Reggie was kind of handing over the mantle to Jermaine. And one thing that you hear Reggie talk about a lot, which is funny is he wanted to like let Ron Artest and Jermaine O'Neal realize, Hey, this isn't either of your teams. This is still my team. That type of thing. When he was going out before the whole brawl thing happened and all that. But, you know, I think Jermaine and Ron have a really good relationship. Now they've mended what was ever an issue back in the day. I mean, Jermaine was faithful to this organization. He didn't want to move on from here. The Pacers traded him because they were ready to move on. And it wasn't his choice. I think if he could have finished his career here, he would have. But he says whenever he goes anywhere, the only jersey he really sees being you know spotted for him is a Pacers jersey. So that's why I've got Jermaine at number six because I think he was just a pivotal part of this franchise. And unfortunately, you know things didn't end the way they they probably that he wanted to. But still, a great Pacer. You know, he was one of those guys who I I thought was really good on the floor, but like we were saying a little bit earlier, the lack of charisma and and the lack of, like some of these guys, it's not like they choose to withdraw from the community. That's not what happens. But some Mm -hmm. of these guys are more comfortable in the public eye than others. And Jermaine was just one of those guys who wasn't comfortable in the public eye. And that's not to denigrate him at all, but because of his... His lack of societal contribution here in Indianapolis, I graded him down, and so I've got him at number 11, and that doesn't mean he wasn't a terrific player, 
and and didn't you know do what he could to, to give the Pacers a, a whole bunch of wins during that era. But yeah, I had him at eleven for those reasons that he he's just like when you think of those teams, despite the fact that he was, you just don't think about Jermaine O'Neal for whatever reason. He, he's kind of like. Freddie Lewis, what Freddie Lewis to, was to the early run of the Pacers, at least in in my mind, as I name people during that era, as I go back and kind of drift through time back in the 2000s, Jermaine's just not a guy that I, I, I automatically go to. Right, and I'm in the same way. It's kind of like he was a, a fan favorite of mine as a kid growing up, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I think I still hung on to Reggie Miller as that player until he retired yeah. because – you saw Reggie go through all those, you know, incredible moments in the late '90s, early 2000s, and as a young kid, that's who I gravitated to. I'm like, well, this is Reggie's team. You know, we sing the Reggie song. We've got the Boom Babies. We got it all going for Reggie. And Jermaine's just this really nice guy that's coming up being an All Star and a guy that you really, you know, love cheering for. But you know, you know, Jermaine's definitely not in my top five favorite Pacers of all time, and it's probably because I didn't ever connect with him. Like you said, because the charisma wasn't there now. Our guy, our co-host Mike Focci, biggest Jermaine fan out there. I mean, I just don't understand that. But, hey, you know, to each their own like we talk about. And uh, Jermaine, great guy, was once again a great, great interview for our podcast and was one of the nicest guys that I've talked to when we've done interviews and was just so humble and grateful for the opportunity. So, yeah, I got him at number six. Kent, who do you got at number five? I've got Freddie Lewis, and we've talked about him a lot. I I kind of – Bumped him just based upon the uh, you know the old timers that are are huge fans of Freddie Lewis and and the way people talk about him being underrated. I kind of gravitated toward that, so I've got Freddie Lewis. Yeah, and like I said, I don't know much to say about Freddie, but we talked about Freddie already. So I guess for my number five, we'll talk about uh, the most hated probably Pacer of this generation, and that's Paul George. Uh, number five felt fair. I mean, I think if you look at his career. He had some really great years for the Pacers, and when the Pacers teams were not very good, he did a really great job of you know, making them competitive. And, of course, there were times where you didn't like his attitude, the way he handled himself. We mentioned it last episode. We like Paul George 24 better than PG-13, better than playoff P, you know, all these, you know, Batman. You know, we, we were more of a fan of young Tracey, if that's what we want to call him, because he's got so many nicknames that he gives himself. I've never heard a guy give himself so many nicknames besides Shaq, and he's not at that level. <laughs> so I uh, got to throw a little bit of spite in there because it is Paul George, and he did kind of screw the franchise over in a, in a certain way. But at the same time, he made it uh, manageable for the Pacers to transition instead of having to let him walk for nothing. So we do at least owe him that. But, you know, Paul George was probably one of the most fun Pacers to watch when he was here. The He was so electrifying with his dunks, big shots that he would hit. No, he didn't hit game winners, but he still hit big shots. You know, there was times where he'd go head-to-head and you'd be like, okay, Paul George is going to carry us to a victory here. And he did that for this team. Even when we had David West, Roy Hibbert, that era, you know, he was coming into his own. But once they left, after he was injured and only played just six games the following year, played 81 games at the age of 25. And, you know, there was a lot of transition going on with that organization. And a lot of change was not easy for Paul to deal with. Paul really wanted to be back home in California, wanted to play on a team where he would get more recognition. So he decided Indiana was fun for the time being, but it's time to move on. And at the end of the day, he was a really great player for this organization, and I think if they could have held on to him, he probably would have been a pacer for life. He's a good player. There's no doubt about that. Um, he was always kind of a poor fit here. He, he, he always seemed to be the guy, Yeah, and, and this happens with, with some guys, that they weren't popular when they were young, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're thrust into popularity and they really try to inhabit it, but it's not natural to them. So you get a lot of Paul George activity. Like when he got his first extension, after the rookie contract signed an extension, and I'm talking to him, and he's talking about how he needs to be the leader of the team and how he's going to be the leader. And I think he was 23 at the time. I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? A a 23-year-old doesn't really even know how to conduct himself yet much less lead a locker room of others, for God's sake. What is this guy even talking about? But it was kind of like he made a decision. This is what I'm going to say. 
I need to be a leader. They're going to pay me all this money. And so I'm going to say this and I'm going to present this as some kind of a factual deal when in in you know in truth the guy had no leadership capabilities whatsoever and was really an awkward communicator both with teammates and with the media as well as with fans mm-hmm. a, a wonderfully talented guy who can defend every spot on the floor right right so as a as a defender really really good and is probably capable of being the third best player on a multiple championship team but if he's your best player you have no chance to win a championship because number one he isn't good enough and number two he's going to dick over your culture <laughs> wow i love the spite there get and uh, yeah i get worked up i know i know well it's funny because we had michael grady come on our podcast on thursday night that aired friday morning just to talk about when we were doing our march madness tournament it was a 2011 2012 pacers versus a 2012 2013 team and we were asking him you know his thoughts on both those teams who he would take and he ended up picking 2012 2013 for the team he thought was better but he said that if Paul George would have had the same mentality as a Lance Stevenson as far as nobody was going to get in his way he was going to just go out there and do whatever he could to win with Paul's talent he said he could have been a number one on a team he said but Paul George loves to defer and he said he's more Robin than he is Batman, which we've heard him say several times. But that's just kind of the thing. You know, Paul is a good basketball player, really talented, a, a high-level player, was a top-ten player based on a lot of people's thoughts for a good three to four years. I don't know where they have him at now, but at least top 15, top 20 in the league today. So, you know, I mean, there are issues with Paul George as a number one player of a franchise, but at the end of the day, he was really talented. I mean, I can't deny how great of a talent he is. He was really good. There, There's no doubt about it. Couldn't hit a late-game shot. Right, you know, Couldn't right. do that. And then he bitched about it when C.J. Miles takes the shot. <laughs> you know, I don't like that at all. Uh, no. um, uh, I just think, you know, I mean, he – I there was just nothing about him that seemed real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was nothing authentic about Paul George at all. He's wearing the – He's wearing the suits, and he's wait. It was like he was playing dress up, right? Going to games in the playoffs, trying to get people to think a certain thing about him, when there was really nothing to think about yeah. about him. I, I guess I, I, it's too bad you didn't talk about um, the uh, the team following those two teams with Evan Turner, because if you can get Michael Grady talking about Evan Turner. Man, damn the torpedoes. Just sit back and enjoy listening to a guy get angry for what, in my opinion, was sort of no reason. And Michael Grady's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet in your life, but he loathed Evan Turner. He won't mention his name, and it's just so peculiar to me. I love to get him riled up uh, about Evan. Yeah, and it doesn't help that Big Joe's from Ohio State, too, so it was another right. thing to rag on Big Joe about his Ohio State boy. But, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting dynamic, and we've talked about that several times about why people hate Evan Turner. And, of course, I asked that on the last episode, too, with the other guys. We had a Born Ready 2 pod joining us as well to break down the Sweet 16 of the March Madness Pacers bracket, and they were just like, he was horrible. I mean, he, he came in here and did absolutely nothing for us. He was you know, sick the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, he just was such a, a choke of a of a pickup. But I'm like, hey, you know what? It is what it is. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But anyway, Ken, we got four left here. Our top four. So this would be our Mount Rushmore, I guess you could yeah. say, uh, of Pacers basketball players of all time. So at number four, who do you got? I got Roger Brown. Okay. Um, Roger Brown, 6'5", dynamic at the three. Um, a, a guy who could score, a guy who could defend, a guy who could rebound. Uh, it, he he dished well. Three championships with the Pacers when Roger Brown was on the team. Four All-Star appearance, appearances. Really re- taken too young from us, for sure. I remember when he died, he, he was just 54, died, I think, of lung cancer. Oh, wow. uh, but a guy who went to Dayton and, and came to the Pacers. And, you know, not a lot of guys... Not a lot of guys give tribute to Roger Brown, I think, in the measure that it's deserved mm-hmm. uh, because he was an ABA guy. But if you talk to people who played, he'd have had a hell of an NBA career as well. Yeah, and I've got him just one spot higher at number three. I think our – I don't know where you have Mel Daniels, but uh, I have Mel Daniels at number four, and this was tough for me because I, I try to look back at you know those ABA teams and – 
You got McGinnis, Brown, D- Daniels. Those are the guys that everybody talks about. But right. I, I went with Daniels at number four. You know, one thing that always shocks me is the guy was only six foot nine and played center, two hundred twenty pounds. So he wasn't like some massive bruiser. But I've heard things about how strong his handshake was. If that's yeah. if that's the same thing I can remember. And everybody would say just. He would rip your hand off basically by just shaking your hand. And imagine that guy going up to grab rebounds for the Pacers. You know, he was a monster for the Indiana Pacers. And it was a devastation to see him pass away when he did at the age of 71 on October 30th of 2015. But, you know, he was just a fantastic human, not just not just a player, because we know that Big Mel was so good for those championship ABA teams. He made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like nine, I believe it was, all-star appearances. And he was he did coach the Pacers for a little bit, I believe, too. So, you know, it's one of those things where Mel Daniels, I didn't watch him play enough to really know how great of a player he was. They didn't even record blocks and steals back when he played in the ABA. So he put up... Uh, 21 and 18 one year, 18 points, 17 rebounds, 24 points, 16 rebounds, 22 points and 15 rebounds, 19 and 16, 18 and 15. I mean, the guy was just a walking double-double. There's no doubt about it. And the way he was just so incorporated with the franchise as a mentor. I mean, Reggie Miller called him Uncle Mel. And he was there for so many of the different uh, you know generations of Pacer players that come in and out of that building. And Mel was just a staple of that Pacers franchise. So definitely worth being on the top four. And honestly, my two through four were kind of, you know, I thought they could be interchangeable. So I'm not set on him as number four, but he's definitely in my in my Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I've got Mel at number two. Gotcha. Uh, number one, because he was a dominant big in the ABA. You mentioned his statistics. He He averaged during one playoff run over 19 rebounds a game. He was a badass. He he was a guy. He could score it. He could rebound it. He was tougher than hell. Um, to me, and this maybe this is colored through the way Andre Drummond usually kind of schools, uh, uh, you know, Miles Turner, mm-hmm. and and the way he plays against the Pacers. But when I hear about when I hear people talk about Mel Daniels, automatically I think a good current day comp is Andre Drummond that he's just going to go get the basketball and whatever it takes to go get the basketball, that's what he's going to do. And a guy who stayed with the organization forever, as you mentioned, was a terrific mentor for a whole bunch of guys, had good conversations with the media. He was a guy, Conrad Brunner, when you talk to him uh, about Mel, he, he, he will go on at length talking about what a great resource he was in, in a, kind of getting an educated appraisal for new guys coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and how he saw the game was so unique and so valuable to the Pacers, both as a player and then as, uh, you know, kind of an ambassador, whatever his role was with the team. I always thought that he, he is just a great dude, lived here forever, and, uh, you know, a beloved part of those ABA championship teams, the three of them. And in really a beloved part of the community for all those years after. Right. Yeah. I mean, looking at his resume, I kind of feel bad that I had him at number four. He probably should be number two on my list. I mean, too late to change it now because I can't erase and retype it. (laughs) You know, but uh, stand your ground, Alex. Yeah. 67, 68 rookie of the year, three time ABA champion, two time MVP. Um, He was the all star MVP, I believe it was, uh, five time all ABA was on the uh, all the rookie team, of course, too. So, I mean, and he's a Hall of Famer. So this guy, great numbers, you know, great resume, great pedigree. Got a lot of respect for him. And I believe you said your number three was Rick Smith, which we've talked yeah. about. My yeah. number three is Roger Brown, which you just talked about. And, of course, you jumped to number two already with Mel. So I'll just jump to my number two. We talked about him already, and that's George McGinnis. And, you know, I look at his resume, too. Hall of Fame, two-time ABA champion. Uh, 74, 75 MVP, two-time All-NBA, uh, three-time All-ABA. So he was really good, and not just the ABA, but the NBA as well. I believe he played for the Pacers, like you said, in both NBA and ABA. So he, he was just a fantastic player, and I think the reason I put him up so much higher is because he's such a big guy, 6'8", 235 pounds, and was you know what people compare to LeBron James. And if people are talking about LeBron James now, they say he's the second best player more than likely in the NBA now. Not everybody has that same 
uh, sentiment, but a lot of people would put LeBron as number two of all time in the NBA. And I feel like George, they said, was kind of like the pre-LeBron of his era. So that's kind of why I put him up higher. But, I mean, just looking at his numbers, fantastic basketball player and really was a was a huge part of the Pacers' success because McGinnis was kind of the guy they went to in, in the stretch time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's uh that's a great point. One of the obviously uh and and we discussed this a little bit, but one of those guys who made the transition from ABA to NBA so seamlessly. Yeah. That that's a huge testament because a lot of guys had a hard time with that. You know, I Well, and and there was a there was a stigma to it, right? You know, the ABA was kind of seen as this outlaw league, this this band of renegades. And they were, I mean, guys like Red Auerbach hated the ABA and all that it stood for and and really stood in the way of a lot of, when Red Auerbach finally passed, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden Pacers guys from the ABA started being elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I I think that, you know, Auerbach always had kind of a, uh, a disdain for the ABA. But when you look at guys like, you know, Julius Irving or George McGinnis. And, and there are others who made that transition. George Gervin, uh, right. Artis Gilmore is, is another guy like that. Dan Issel, another guy like that. You, you saw that the ABA was high-level basketball, really good. Rick Barry's another one that comes to mind. Yeah, that was good basketball being played by excellent athletes, and, and they really didn't get their due during their playing career, and, and that's a shame. Yeah, no, you're you're definitely right there, Kent. And you know we could talk about George McGinnis for a little a long time, but you know I don't know enough about him. I would love to get somebody that knows and watched him play come talk about him. It'd be great to hear uh, Slick Leonard talk about him because I know those are his guys. But you know, right. at number one, I think we're both in agreement here for our number yeah. one, and I think that's got to go to Tyree Evans. You know, was a great pacer for one year. <laughs> You know, really helped the Pacers in that Celtic sweep and uh, cause a lot of drama. I, I think Tyreek was worse than Lance. Yeah, Tyreek um, was a strange dude. You know, a, kind of a smart guy, but clearly some demons in Tyreek's life that kept him from kind of being the player that the Pacers hoped they were getting. Um, you know, with a guy like that, you, you sign him to a sort of a low-ball deal. He came from Memphis, where – why in the hell am I devoting all this time talking about Tyreek Evans? <laughs> who, who gives a damn about Tyreek? <laughs> nice guy. I always enjoyed talking to him, but there was always something going on in there. I, I wasn't really sure what uh, was any of my business, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't know why. I was just like, all right, I can't go with it. Talk, talk about Tyreek. <laughs> I can like, oh, all right. But, uh, so. yeah, I was debating on whether saying Tyreek or Monte Ellis to be funny. There, but, uh, <laughs> both are on the hate list. Maybe that'd be a good uh, thing to do. We could do our top ten most hated Pacers of all time. Wow. That would be fun. Uh, be a little spiteful. People might like that. But, anyway, no, well, we one, like the course, spite. Reggie Miller. I mean, come on, yeah. now, people. There's no doubt about it. You guys knew he was number one. And I got to get your thoughts on Reggie Kent because, I mean, obviously this is one of my childhood heroes uh, as a young basketball fan. You know, he made five all-star teams, but those all-star teams were really in three different decades, if you count the 80, 89, 90 as being part of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a cool deal. He, he was nothing but class. You know, there was always a sense with Reggie on the floor that you weren't out of anything. Like the the 25-point fourth quarter against the Knicks, the, uh, you know, the eight points in seven seconds – that's just unbelievable. And I remember I remember watching that game and my wife and son, they were going to go to the store with, I think, about 30 seconds left. And they said, come on, we're going to the store. I said, no, no, this isn't over. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And then they came home and I said, ha, ah. I said, they won. And, and they were incredulous. And I've never let them forget it. You know, but there was always a sense that he never thought he was out of anything and that he was going to find a way to lift that team and lift his teammates. I always thought he was a great teammate, a total professional, a great guy in the community. One of the another of the the Pacers, we talked about how some of them become executives. He's become a terrific broadcaster. A lot of Pacers uh, and former Pacers with really really good broadcasting careers. You talk about like Reggie and Clark Kellogg and Len Elmore. And I mean, there are Austin, 
has done a lot of right. media. You, you've seen a lot. Scott Pollard's kind of moved in that direction a little bit. You see a lot of Mully. Uh, you don't. He's more a warrior really than a pacer. But a lot of these guys have become terrific broadcasters, and and Reggie, one of those, um, always a, a really hardworking dude. That I and I think that that's always what vibes with this community. You, you understand and you can see it. Guys who work hard. He was kind of that guy who brought us a little swagger, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think that Indiana basketball is so stoic. Really, what what we appreciate are guys who go out like machines and grind opponents into dust. We like that kind of player. But Reggie kind of brought attitude with the the choke and and all of that stuff. I just, I mean, who's got a negative thing to say about Reg? Yeah, there's. I mean, unless there's people that don't like his announcing, which I don't understand. I think he's pretty good. Oh, he but, is good. <clears throat> some people are are big haters on him on Twitter, if you ever notice. But I try to ignore them, and I don't care if I'm biased because I like him because he's a pacer. It is what it is. But you know, I I love what you said, Kent, because there was just this thing about him where he had that never quit mentality. And even though you probably knew, yeah, he's not as good as Michael Jordan. He's not as good as Shaquille O'Neal with the Magic. You know, he's the Knicks were always having our number, and it, you know, I felt like the Pacers Knicks teams are pretty equally you know talented with one another we kept running into them finally beat them in 94 95 before we lost in the eastern conference finals to the magic but you know reggie was just one of those guys that he always had a chip on his shoulder and he always had to be trying to prove people that he was better because i mean look at his childhood cheryl miller greatest one of the greatest women's basketball players of all time and she was just like you watch that miller time documentary and she was always still in the spotlight of the millers and so reggie was always trying to live up to his sister's hype and and trying to be that guy and so just seeing him play from the age of 22 to the age of 39 for the indiana pacers the fact that you know um why am i blanking on his name uh donnie walsh you know picked him over steve alford in the draft Uh, a guy that a lot of people didn't know about people people booed the pick and he became the most beloved pacer yeah. probably of all time. And I tell you, Kent, one of the classiest things about Reggie Miller was the retirement that we got to send him off with in that Detroit game. Larry Brown, his former coach, calls that timeout, the extra timeout to give the fans one more chance to cheer for Reggie. And, and talking about it, I'm getting goosebumps, Kent, because every time I watch that video on YouTube, I get teary-eyed. I get emotional because that was part of my childhood. It was my first real memory of you know loving a basketball player and then seeing them walk away it was a hard transition for me to really accept and I was only what 11 years old at the time 12 13 maybe so yeah it was really difficult for me but I was such a fan of him and what he meant to this organization all the great memories all the big shots the one against Michael and the Bulls in the playoffs you know getting into fist fights you know headbutting uh the John Starks headbutt you know it's just Little things. He was just a pest. You'd hate him if he wasn't on your team, but he was our guy for 18 seasons, and he was fantastic. Yeah, it, he is. He is that iconic guy. Yeah. You know, every franchise needs a guy. You know, like the Cubs, they've got Ernie Banks, and the Braves have Henry Aaron, and the, the Yankees have a bunch of iconic guys. But Instead every of the Cardinals, every fran- my Cardinals. Cardinals with uh, Stan Musial, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and Reggie is that guy for this franchise, and and you've got other franchises like the the Kings. I, who's their guy? I got no idea who their Weber. guy is. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. So, but that's our guy. He'll always be at the top of that pile. And at the age of fifty-five, he looks like he can still go out and play. It's unbelievable. That's true. Yeah, no, I mean, it's incredible the stuff that he does still with uh, all the bicycle stuff that he does. It's fantastic how much he's in shape. And, you know, I really, you know, would you have been mad if he would have left and and came back and went to the Celtics? You know, I was thinking about that. I really like the the idea of of the Pacers having him as a one-team guy. Right. You know, I think it would have been cool for him to go out a champion, and and that would have been interesting. But I don't like... I just, like, that's Willie Mays playing for the Mets. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or Johnny Unitas playing for the Cardinals or, or for the uh, Chargers. I, I just don't like that. It, it, it just doesn't fit my eye. It's kind of even with Peyton Manning. 
thinking oh, of Broncos. him as a Bronco just that that, bro, that bothers me. Yeah. Um, so Reggie not doing that. I'm really glad he didn't. And and Donnie Walsh actually gets kind of emotional about that. That he was really hoping that Reggie didn't come back to play for the Celtics because that he didn't want his memory kind of tarnished by seeing Reggie out there in green and white. Right. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, it'd be like Larry Bird playing for somebody else, too, you know. It's one of those things, I mean, we don't. We saw how awful it was seeing Michael play for the Wizards. So, you know, it just leaves that, oh, yeah, I remember when he was on that team, and you don't have to worry about that. You had him for 18 years. You got to an NBA Finals. You went to several Eastern Conference Finals. You know, it just stinks that we were never able to get the job done as far as getting him yeah. a championship. So there's that sentimental side of me that's like, you know what? I wouldn't have been mad if he would have went out with Boston and won a championship. Just because I felt like he gave 18 seasons to us, I would just love to see him get a ring. Because, I mean, look at a guy like Charles Barkley who left and played for a couple different teams after this, um, the Sixers. He went to the Suns and then he went to the Rockets. And he was trying to win a championship. And still to this day, you know, that he's one of the greatest basketball players that never won a ring. But because yeah. he didn't win a ring, people hold it against him. I mean, same thing goes for Reggie. It's like, I mean, the guy was a fantastic basketball player. And it, it, it drives me crazy because if Ray Allen doesn't ever win a championship, they're not even in the same category. But because Ray Allen hit a couple big shots in some championship series, you know, now people are saying that Ray Allen is a better player than Reggie Miller. And I'm just like, oh, it just breaks my heart because I really think that Reggie yeah. was – a better overall player than Ray Allen. He was. And, and you know, I don't think anybody who was around then is ever going to forget the Eastern Conference Finals in 98 between the Bulls and the Pacers. The Pacers, the only team to take Michael Jordan during those six championship runs, the only team to take him to a seventh game. And, and really, the Pacers had a hell of a shot at winning that game seven. I can't remember which game it was. Reggie hit a shot, and then Michael came back on the other end and just missed about a 38-footer. But I have never seen a crowd as amped for a game as that game at Market Square Arena. It was just phenomenal. And that's all, like, without Reggie, you don't have that. There's no chance that happens without Reggie. Absolutely. Well, I've got to ask you because uh, we have finished our, our bracket here with our voting committee. Did you agree with uh, all the votes, or were you disappointed with some of them? What happened in the championship? Okay, so the championship has the spoiler alert. So uh, it looks like the 1999-2000 team won it all. Oh, I don't like that. No, the 98 team to me was better. Yeah. That was a better basketball team. The 2000 team, I, I think, got to the got to the finals because we were kind of in between sort of runs of Eastern Conference dominance that sort of lasted through the Pistons winning that. Like the, the Pistons, one of the real anomalous uh, NBA champions of, of any era, you know, really didn't have a dynamic guy. You had Chauncey Billups. You had, I think, Rashid. Yet that was a weird team to have win an NBA championship. Um, but that 98 team and the way they played the Bulls, I thought was stupendous. I thought that they went in against a team that was a prohibited favorite. And minus game two, which I was actually at up in Chicago at the United Center, minus that game, that was a hell of a series and really required absolutely the best that Michael Jordan had to go ahead and beat him. And I'm looking forward to that documentary, the 10-part documentary on ESPN about that last run for the Bulls because I, I think that those games between the Bulls and the Pacers kind of showed, uh, I think, the best of the Bulls, the best of the Pacers, and I think that the best that the NBA has to offer. Yeah. Well, I mean, i, I got to get your thoughts. Number one, were you pulling for the Bulls there, or were you pulling for the Pacers? Oh, no, I was all in for the Pacers. Okay. Absolutely. Now, when the Bulls played the Jazz, I was all in for Michael and, and getting that done. I moved here in 93 right before they won their first uh, run of three. So that gotcha. that third championship in that three-peat, I, I moved down here, and I was still kind of a Bulls guy. But once the Pacers, there was a, that, that run in 94 was really, really unique and kind of unexpected, and it was very cool, and it, we, we had a lot of fun with it. And uh, they were a likable bunch of guys where you could see the, like we were talking about O'Neal uh, a little bit earlier and how like his face never showed anything. Mm -hmm. But with that team in in 98, 
like you could tell what everybody was thinking. Yeah, they were all emotional, you know, except Dale Davis, who is just, <laughs> you know, like the the biggest, baddest, badass ever. I've never seen him smile. Right. You know, he's that kind of guy. I just loved that team in 98. And, and the thing that was missing in 2000 to me from a personnel standpoint is you didn't have somebody like uh, Antonio. Yeah. And, and so that team in 2000, I didn't think it was quite as good as the team in 98. I don't either, especially since you got to remember Smith was getting older. Reggie was getting a little bit older. Jackson was on his last leg. Same with Chris Mullen. You know, yeah. Rose, Rose was probably the only one that was probably a little bit better in that series than he was in 97, 98. But still, I think that was probably one of the best Bulls teams out of those six championship teams. And I've got to ask you this because if the Pacers win that game against the Bulls and play the Jazz, do they win an NBA championship that year in your opinion? Yeah, I think that they would have won. I think whoever came out of the East was going to win it. Yeah, um, I, I think that they were the better team despite Carl Malone and and John Stockton and and that group with the Jazz. I, I thought that the Pacers were really – I thought that they were the second best team in the NBA that year. Yeah, and it's unbelievable how great they were in that series. I mean, you go back and watch that yeah. first quarter when they're up like 25-6, to six, and you're thinking – how did we lose this game? I mean, 25 points on a quarterback <laughs> in the 90s. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. You don't see that a lot. I mean, unless you're like the Warriors and Suns in the early 90s. But, yeah, in the Eastern Conference, you didn't see that kind of scoring. I mean, you're used to low 90s, you know, high 80s for some of these final scores. And Pacers were on pace to get close to 100 points that game. And then they just, you know, the Bulls started coming back and the Pacers started missing shots. It was like – such a letdown because that first quarter they were looking un like they were looking like they were going to upset Michael and that would have yep. been great to change like rewrite history with that. And they had a five or a four point lead with five minutes left if if memory serves and and Dale missed a couple of free throws and and you know that is that's a great story of what might have been and then the thing that I thought was cool about the series too is that when that series came to Indy. You know, Scotty Pippen and Michael are out at Champs up at Keystone at the Crossing. You heard about Rodman out every night in Broad Ripple, you know, just tearing it up. And it was kind of like, you know, th- these sort of. A little bit. And maybe didn't take the Pacers as seriously as they should. And it almost bit them in the ass. But it was, it was, it was very, very cool. It, there was just a, a unique fabric to that si- series in that it really engaged everybody in the city. Like, the, the Pacers are sort of hit and miss, right, mm-hmm. a, as far as engaging the city. And, like, that, that team back in, in 13, 12, 13, 14, right, th- th- nobody really gave it a big, giant fan hug. Yeah. The teams in the 90s, from 94 through 2000, this city – absolutely loved that basketball team and loved those basketball players and i think that that was the best group that they had yeah and i and i'll just tell you this because i know this from memory and this just shows how big of a fan my my dad was of the pacers in the 90s um he recorded a lot of games on vcr really of the of the games because a lot of times and when they play on sunday nights you know we have church on sunday nights at six thirty, so you'd miss a lot of those games and so i remember as a young kid like looking in our cabinet in our entertainment sister, like an entertainment system, and finding old videos, and it'd be like it was that game seven against the Pacers and Bulls. Have to fast forward through commercials, stuff like that. But you know, I was just so intrigued as a young kid. I mean, that was before YouTube was even around. So you know, I'm just watching all these old tapes on VHS, and I have no idea what he's done with them now because we've moved a couple times. But yeah. Uh, that's what I remember. I mean, him recording old games, seeing them on VHS, and my dad was a huge fan. His buddies from church were big fans. They'd go after uh, church was over and go to one another's house and watch the games from start to finish and re- on the on the tape just because they were so excited. And, yeah, you know, that just serves a memory. I, I agree with you. The, the fans love the 90s era more than they really embraced the 2010s era. You know, and, and how cool is it? You know, it's it, like it's so different to me, and I don't know why. But if you've got a VHS tape that was record, recorded in the moment, mm-hmm. to put that in the machine and have that thing fire up and you hit play, and there it is as it was recorded back in 98 or whatever, versus watching the game on YouTube. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? There, there's like you're, you're touching it. it. It's like listening to a record album 
rather than listening to you know an MP3 or listening to Apple Music or or however you consume your 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 music, it, it's like you're holding it a and you remember when you bought it. You remember when you recorded it, and it's just so cool. It is, and number one, you get to see all the great commercials from the '90s, which uh, <laughs> yeah, right. how how they've changed from the commercials, how much they've changed drastically. But I also just love the way the broadcast was uh, presented to the yeah. fans. NBA on NBC. I mean, I love the guys on NBA on TNT, but you won't find a better setup than what the NBA on NBC was. I mean, I just. Oh man, the nostalgia when that music hits, uh the NBA on NBC theme. Oh man. And I love Bob Costa. I thought he was great. I thought the color commentators were good. I mean Isaiah Thomas, I thought he was actually a pretty good color commentator there for some of that yep. era. Uh Doug Collins, of course, was one of my favorites as well. And then of course the studio guys were great too. You know, even Peter Vesey. <laughs> someone uh, oh, who's uh who's a little bit different. But yeah. Uh, I had my fair share of uh, encounters with Peter Vesey, and uh, <laughs> the last time uh, it was uh, the final straw for us. Uh, I had some technical difficulties, and he told me, you've made me wait too long. I'm done with you. <laughs> said, okay. That's all right. He's not a terrible I, – I don't think he's a very very good at what he does anyway. Oh, he so hates everybody. So I don't think he missed a lot. Yeah. He hates everybody. So. It's so interesting. But, yeah, I was just like, so sorry. You know, we were scheduled at 6, and my computer decided it was going to do an automatic update. I mean, how can I control that? Right. And I was like, I'm so sorry. It's doing an automatic update on my computer. I just got home from work. Can you give me till 620, 625? And he didn't say anything back. And then at, like, 625, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. He said, sorry, you said 6. I'm done with this. And I was like, okay, awkward. So, you know, uh, there's nothing worse than uh, a media guy who is either petulant or angry at life or angry at athletes or jealous of athletes. These, the angry media guy is one of my least favorite people of all time, my least favorite media types or least favorite types of people. And, mm-hmm. and I think Peter kind of falls into that category. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, like he was – he loved talking about the ABA Pacers, so it was always fun hearing him, you know, have conversations about the guys that he was, fr- the guys he was friends with uh, from the ABA days. I mean, because he watched them all play. But yeah, he was he was a grumpy guy. He didn't like Magic. He didn't like Bill Simmons. Didn't like half the guys in the NBA today. And yeah, it was just one of those things. It was just a disgruntled old man, is what it felt like I was talking to when I did interview him a few times. Yeah, that, that those guys wear me out. People in the media work in the toy store. Uh, of life professionally and 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 to think anything other than that to somehow elevate yourself to a a a level of importance in this whole thing and that you know telling the stories of and and whatever you know look there are a lot of journalists who do really important work sports journalism to me is never important that the guys who do it well are are lovely and and i wish them all the best but uh, let's be honest about what we do. We write about grown men playing games yeah. for a living. This isn't earth-shattering. It, it's not world-beaten. It's, it's not to put it in some kind of context where these guys somehow think that they're doing important work it is just nutty to me, and, and I've never really gotten it. You know, m- most everybody, they understand. Right. Like, here, here's what we do. We go to games, we try to figure out what the angle of the game is, and we share it with people. And maybe by putting it into a context, we make it more fun to watch. But that doesn't elevate the importance of the event to a, a, a level where it needs to be you know, deemed like world-shaking. It, it's just ridiculous. So he, he's one of those guys. And you get those guys from time to time. They drive me nuts. Yeah. Well, I, I was trying to be nice because I had people saying, oh, I enjoy when you talk to him. So I was like, all right, I'll get him back on. But after he did that to me, I was like, you know what? I'm done with it. But, you know, Kent, yeah, this, on him. this has been fun. Uh, we did our top 30 list. So let us know what you guys think. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some that you agree and disagree with. But we'll be back next week. We're not sure what exactly we're going to be talking about. But if you have any ideas, shoot them over to us on Setting the Pace 3 on Twitter or at Kent Sterling or at me at Alex Golden. NBA, but yeah, until next time, everybody, just be safe, wash your hands, and don't be (laughs) stupid. All right, we'll see you next week. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. 
relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.